Hi, this is Keegan from A Bunch of Gamers. I'm here to do my first thoughts on Justin Weaver's Snowhaven 5e Snowpunk Fantasy. This is a setting book for the 5th edition Dungeons & Dragons. As the name implied, there is a Pathfinder 1st edition version of this book, but I like 5th edition more, so I decided to get this one. This book is published by High Level Games, and there will be a link to the book in the description for anyone interested in picking this up after they hear what I have to say. All three of you. So we'll get to right uh, started. We'll talk about the cover art. The cover art is very pretty. It's evocative. It has two of the new races found in Snowhaven with new weapons going up against what I think is a white dragon or possibly one of the new monsters found in the back of the book. I'm really unclear since not all of the monsters have uh, art associated with them, so I can just do my best guess. But it is a kind of the kind of picture that makes me just go, yeah, I could definitely see myself running an adventure here. So kudos, yeah, I'm super happy with the cover art and I think it's a great introduction. So we're gonna get into my first issue in the book already and it's it seems minor but it's, uh, there's no introduction section. We have a table of contents, but no blurb to kind of give us an overview of the setting, what it's about, what to expect. I like introductions because it's a prep. It's a mental prep going into a book to get you into sort of the right frame of mind to start reading, formulating ideas, stories, adventures, and even characters for a setting. I think every book without an introduction for a role-playing game is lessened without an introduction. I just, this is probably the aspect of the book I like the least. Uh, and then we go in and there are little snippets of in-character lore through letters in between the chapters, which I like. It adds flavor, it gives you a window into what characters in the setting are like, what they think, how they act, and it's a nice touch, and it certainly adds to the supplement. It's very similar to the White Wolf books or the Onyx Path books in that regard, and a couple others. The first chapter is Snowhaven's History. And so we get right into the history. The paragraph gives a swift summary of the city's founding, its history, a couple snippets of what you expect to come in the chapter. And so right away we learn that an ancient empire helped found Snowhaven. This ancient empire is kind of neat simply because it reminds me less of a Roman empire or Sumerian empire or something kind of stock fantasy. And it feels more like the British empire did in that it was really motivated by commerce and expansionism that way. And I think that's a nice take and it does add something interesting to the fantasy setting. It sets itself apart in its history that way. This chapter does a great job of making the history of Snowhaven feel real. It sets the stage for socio-economic and religious sentiments at the time and then brings in a sort of great man of history 
who uses these opportunities to shift the perceptions and the history of Snowhaven. The city is, its destiny is ruled as a far-off colony is shaped by the collapse of a ruling empire due to circumstances that aren't actually related to Snowhaven. Snowhaven simply takes advantage of this empire's decline through through events elsewhere. And those events elsewhere are touched upon, but they aren't fully fleshed out because they don't need to be fleshed out. They are associated with something else. It's just enough to relate it to Snowhaven's own history. It gives a great... This chapter also to have, gives a great sense of a greater world and signals to the reader that grand heroics don't necessarily shape the destiny of a nation, but the economic and political circumstances of the world at large shape history, and that their characters are there to help bend history and take advantage of it. And I really like that. I try and capture some of that in my own homebrew settings on occasion with mixed results. Uh, and it depends. If I'm doing a low fantasy setting, I definitely want to feel more like Snowhaven's history versus high fantasy. I'm okay with individual shaping history, but that's neither here nor there with the review, is it? This chapter introduces us to merchant families that manipulate the political climate, political or religious uprisings, ecological disasters, and bloated bureaucracies that permeate Snowhaven and shape the setting as a whole, gives that sort of grittier feel that the book is trying to present. It covers nearly 2,000 years worth of history with most of it happening in Snowhaven, as you would expect. I, uh, my favorite part of the chapter, actually, is the Illuminate. It's a religion that was, that's closely associated with half-elves that blends both their heritages into a single religion. I think that's a... Uh, I don't really see that in other settings, and so I really liked it, and I really latched onto that. And their gods represent ideals that should be aspired to and expected to of others, and so it gives you hints of what that was supposed to be. They also talk about a state-sanctioned monopoly on healing magic, which helped shape the political and mercantile destiny of the city because of political dealings that happened in history, and some of them still lasting into the modern setting. So it creates this chain of events that you can actually trace via the book and potentially in character to see how events unfolded. And I think that's great. I, it's a great look into how a DM can use political ideals and logical outcomes to form very unique and fleshed out settings that will feel fresh, especially to our more experienced players. 
And then finally, this chapter covers some of the modern problems and issues that are plaguing Snowhaven, and several of them are unique to the setting. There are labor groups, which are kind of like the precursors to what we would think of as unions, and their struggle against the merchant class, technology being further developed in Snowhaven, Snowhaven being kind of the first adopters of technology given their harsh environment. And so that creates strife between the workers and their bosses because of the uncertain future. There, there are problems with automation in Snowhaven, and that creates adventure opportunity for your adventurers who are kind of outside of those two classes, so to speak, within Snowhaven. Snowhaven doesn't outright say it, but Snowhaven implicitly drives that adventurers are a different class and a, almost a world apart from the average everyday person because groups tend to distrust adventurers. Adventurers clearly are able to drive and cut their own path. And finally, of course, the environment is a frozen wasteland uh, filled with natural resources, which is begging adventurers to become entrepreneurs to plunder those resources for their own gain, but with potential ecological, political, and moral dilemmas that will test your players. Uh, with While this chapter is good in terms of content, I do have some complaints about it. And uh, most of them is about the formatting and how the information is presented. The beginning of the chapter is presented uh, very much like a history book in that it goes through and lays out events and even name drops events that happened in distant lands with very little explanation to great effect, but it does feel a little overwhelming. The chapter names the empire or rebellion a religious order and a set, second set of kingdoms that rebelled against this empire with little initial context. And for me, it felt like I missed a whole chapter or a whole section of the book. And it feels off-putting. This chapter doesn't have as much of my main issue with some of the information presented in this book in that it... But uh, we'll get to that in the next one, which is, I think, the major offender of my least favorite way that they present the information. The timeline, uh, there's a timeline at the back of the chapter, which uh, with different years is very cool. It's a nice touch. We see that in other books, right? We've seen it in Call of Cthulhu. We see it in Werewolf the Wild West Companion, etc., etc. And I like timelines because they give you a year and then some quick blurb about what happened to just make you go, okay, and you're able to lay out events and potentially go back through the chapters or the same chapter to find that information and drive into further detail. However, there are some sections of that timeline that are more than bulletins. There's paragraphs of information in the timeline that I think would have been better served just put with the rest of the paragraphs of information uh, it talks about a mage uprising because they were a oppressed class, things like that, and they're just huge swaths of information that you don't expect 
nor really want in a timeline. A timeline is supposed to be just quick, ready-to-know information right there that you've already understood because of the information that came prior. And the last thing really is I'd like to see a map. Like, there's a map in the next chapter that shows Snowhaven, but I like a map of the continental region. Uh, they name drop this empire, they name drop these continents, they name drop this coast. And I don't get a picture of it. I don't have a map to reference to get it all straight in my head. I just have to kind of do it myself. Which, if that's what they were going for, fine. But I think there were better ways of doing that. Because the information is so detailed, it sets the expectation that these places are concrete places. But if the expectation is that they are floating areas that you can place at your leisure wherever you need them to be, that that's a disconnect with the first chapter. It just makes me feel like I'm being tested for a geography test that I just didn't study for. The good definitely outweighs the bad here, though. The book has a gritty feel, the events feel logical, and the setting feels real, or at least as real as a setting can be with magic. I forgot to mention this earlier, but there's a fucking plague that mutated to be resistant to healing magic, and that's amazing. Like, it creates this terrifying world that our own people had to deal with, where diseases were constantly mutating and wreaking havoc, and they didn't even have magic to try and fix it. And the fact that viruses can mutate to outwit magic is awesome. That, that's, I've never seen that in any other setting. And I just, that really just sticks out. Probably, especially now. Ugh. Chapter 2, City Life. This chapter is the biggest offender of what detracts my enjoyment of the book, and that is the organization of how the information is presented to us. This book does a lot to present granular information and then expands out into the general. And I think that's the opposite of what you want to do for a role-playing book. A lot of books do this, and they kind of do this in their chapter setup, in that you start off with world history, regional history, organizations throughout history. A lot of books do that, and this book kind of does that, but this book starts with several small or, or several organizations, gives you all the information about them. The information is very interesting, but it's just, it, it just feels, once again, like a test that I didn't study for. And the book does some interesting stuff. It gives you a, map, a, fan, a very nice map of the city that gives you the layout. It gives you the weights or neighborhoods of the city. And it keeps enough vague to let you as a DM fill out whatever the hell you want. And the organizations have plot hooks that are very interesting, they're engaging, they're unique to the setting for the most part, with, with some of them being 
unique and general enough to where you could pluck them for your own homebrew setting. Uh, and I keep talking about plucking things out of this book for your own homebrew setting because I think that's the mark of a good setting book is these books don't necessarily have to be run out of. They inspire ideas for your own setting or inspire ideas to run in this setting. And there are a few that do it very well for me, but this book certainly inspires ideas for my own homebrew that I really like. So the organizations are cool. They should have been just put in the descriptions after the weights. The steam pipes are cool and the dwarf who built them seems to dabble in sort of dark shit basically before I really get the context of what it is, but it's a cool idea. It gives me an idea of how the city as a whole functions. The city is lively. Each area has its own problems. Each area does inspire a kind of feeling and new ideas for adventures. And I'm really just gonna cover my last gripe with this chapter. It's that it introduces this really cool concept, the gods below. These are gods that fought and were cast down and seen as demons by literally every part of the world, but they're tr viewed as true gods in Snowhaven, and they're some of the mo major gods in Snowhaven. They're capricious gods who reward the faithful and cast down those who would stand against them to show the faithful what it means to turn against them. And they're these cool mythological beings that remind you of gods in our own history, in our own mythology, and with the added touch of our own modern fears and horrors blending in with these settings. And they give me one. They, they write out one god. Where are the others? I want to know more about these things. These, seem like, these things seem like important things to the setting, especially important to the Illuminate that I had mentioned earlier. The final thing that I'm going to leave you with for this chapter is the Cutter's Brigade. And I, so they have a weight called the Tracks. And the Tracks is an area that was sort of lower middle class, middle class, and eventually the rent properties and the owners kind of just pushed all of the people out of that area. And then the f buildings fell into decay. Crime became very prevalent. And the city's guard, which in this setting are called the Hearth Guard, decided to basically recruit an entire gang and make a criminal organization, the guards of the area, so that they just didn't have to bother with it. And th that's the Cutter Brigade, and they were founded over a century ago. The Cutter Brigade uses brutal tactics and is constantly at war with these gangs. And the adventure hooks for the Cutter Brigade are fun, and they show the moral ambiguity of the Snowhaven setting. One is that maybe that there's a gang of children running around stealing from the area, and then they find out they're from the white next door so do they enforce the rules of the cutters on these children? Do they try and help the children out? And it gives some suggestions and the moral ambiguity of it. So it's a good chapter, but once again, the, the organization really detracts from my enjoyment of it. It's a, 
It's got great ideas. I just wish they were presented in a way that really clicked with my brain. The next chapter here is character creation in Snowhaven. It gives you a rundown of some of the player handbook races in the setting. It has a short paragraph and gives us some quick ideas and moves on to the new stuff, which I appreciate. It's, hey, these are halflings, but these are elves, but half elves, but dragonborn, but etc. etc. And I think that's a great way of doing it. You don't need a page write up for how elves are different in your setting. We know what an elf is. We all have that collective D&D elf. And almost no fantasy race has been changed enough to warrant the full page change. This one knows what it's doing. It presents the information and moves on. Great. While it does a good job of moving on with the other races, my only real question is, is why is no write up on humans? We get all this information about a wider world why didn't we get a brief description of humanity in Snowhaven? I think it's because they're the default race, so they're tied more closely to the historical events. And I didn't notice this until my second read-through, so it's probably not a big deal that humans weren't initially there. But once you notice they're not there, you notice they're not there. And they seem like a big deal. The book claims they make up over 42% of the population which is more than any other race in Snowhaven. Either way, this book does a great job of going over the old very quickly with all the small changes, and then it lets us go right into the new stuff. And the new stuff is pretty entertaining. The subclasses are flavorful and neat. There's some cool text in their descriptions that adds to the setting as a whole. Typically, I've heard this referred to as archaeological storytelling. It's something that is done in, I guess, I don't know if anyone will get this, the Souls series, Dark Souls, Bloodborne, etc., in that more about the setting is described in items and things like that than what is initially presented to you. Now, this book does a good job of only doing a little bit of that. It's a setting book. Most of the setting should be in the wider setting. But the fact that they did throw in those little details that didn't really fit within anywhere else in the book, I like that. I think that's a great touch. I, it adds something to it, and it lets people who dive into those classes have a little more information about the set, a certain aspect of the setting than someone who doesn't which allows players to approach the setting in character in different ways. The subclasses seem balanced enough on my read-through, and they all add their own unique flair rather than their reskinning the powers found in other products, which I really like. We get a small list of the gods below in the Warlock section, their names are really cool. Once again, I want to know more. But uh, I w just wish they had a bigger section in the second chapter. There is our new setting-specific backgrounds, along with tables to roll for your bond, personality trait, etc., as well as a new table to, uh, to determine which white you were born in. This is tied closer to the Yetu, but they don't have a warlock subclasses for the three voices 
And I'll get to the three voices in a second. But that seems important as those are warlocks that are directly involved with the new character race. And so we'll get to the Yetu right now. The Yetu are relatives of the Yeti that have made deals with the city proper. They have a real, they're very interesting. They have a very cool background. They have their own faith structure, which was the three voices. And they are people on the run. They worship three gods. One god decided that they wanted to be the, the god. Half of them decided, fuck yeah, let's do this. And the other half went, no, we don't want to be bloodthirsty. And so the ones who joined that god became the Yeti, and they became more savage and things like that, and were violent. And the other ones went on the run, and then they found another god to recreate the three voices. They have this great faith structure, uh, and... There's just segments of this race that you can just pluck out and throw into your own setting whole cloth. They're very interesting, and they're tech-savvy, and they look cool. I mean, who doesn't want to look like a Yeti in an Arctic setting? That seems like a default, no-brainer sort of situation. Chapter 4 is Equipment. It has firearms. The firearms are pretty well balanced. They're flintlock, so they do a decent amount of damage, but they have reload times. There's new equipment tags that are associated with equipments that have special effects as shorthand, so you can just find them in the book. It gives us new magical items, new magitech. Once again, I haven't used any of them, but they seem balanced. They seem... Or, I should say, they seem balanced enough to where, even if they're slightly better than standard equipment, they don't seem so much better or so much worse that taking them for flavor is just going to be a hindrance on yourself and your group. So, I think you could use them without much worry. Uh, the one I really want to talk about, just, just to pluck out, is called the Steamroar Armor. It's armor that doubles as a weapon, and so it's filled with steam, and so while you're fighting, the shield can open up and just blast steam, or part of the armor can open up and just blast steam into the face of whoever you're fighting, and it works with the setting. It's visually very cool, and I just like it. And I just like it. Chapter 5 is Climate, and this is the chapter that's going to be of interest to most DMs who like to cannibalize settings, not necessarily use settings. There are special rules for the harsh frozen landscape of Snowhaven. These can be used for any standard game within an Arctic area, or a grittier low fantasy game that adds these elements during the winter months of your setting. What this also does for the setting itself is firmly plant the environment as an antagonist, and that the city, while full of villains, corruption, and the like, as the safest place your characters can be, which drives them to wanting, needing even, to play politics, play the bureaucracy, deal with the merchant class. This adds to the setting, and it uses the world and the rules to encourage forms of play, while not 
coming across as a heavy-handed DMism, where you know a DMism, you know, where the DM goes because I said so, and then just does something, no rolls, no nothing. You can survive in the wilderness. It is going to be harsh. You can possibly even survive in the city of Snowhaven without engaging in the politics. But that will come with its own consequences. And it's going and that encourages players to act a certain way. And I really like that. The next two chapters are the one or some of the ones that I kind of skimmed rather than read. The first is NPCs, simply because I'm just not a big NPC reader for any book. I scan them when I need to, when I need an idea for an NPC. I don't usually read them whole cloth. I grab onto one or two character things and either blend them or make those the forefront of the character. Uh, I really like, though, that each one comes with their pronouns. They're clearly stated. And from what I've read, they add some more archaeological storytelling, as mentioned er earlier regarding the subclasses and class features. The next one is spells. I don't think I've ever read an entire spell list ever for D&D. I look up the spells that monsters have, uh, or I'll skim spells and spell names for antagonists that I'm creating, but I never sit down and read a spell list. I don't think anyone has. If, you do, if, you, if you're listening to this and you have read an entire spell list, Simply because you wanted to know, you are a better person than me. Monsters. There's a, one other chapter after the monster chapter that is pre-made adventures. I haven't dived into them because I just I haven't felt interested in reading the adventures yet. They... I almost never read campaign adventures either, so... I usually read adventures only right before I start a campaign to get an idea of what I want to do. But I, I typically don't read pre-made adventures for D&D. They just don't do anything for me, so I can't be an authority on this, nor can I really tell you if they're good or bad adventures. But given the rest of the book... I'm betting they're good, and they do seem like they fix a lot of the organizational issues I've had with the rest of the book simply be for the necessity that they had to, and it does seem like scene one, scene two, scene two from what little I've skimmed. So, the monsters are very cool, obviously. They, they're interesting and usually presented with a more naturalist stand, slant. They're interesting, and they are usually presented with a more naturalist slant than a mythical one, which falls in line with the rest of the book. I'd mentioned earlier that I think the creature on the front cover was a white dragon or another creature. I believe this creature might be a, no, a snowdrift. I believe this creature is a snowdrift fink. Though, revisiting the write-up, uh, it's a medium creature, so maybe not. Maybe it's a giant one. There's a giant monster template, so maybe. 
There is only one entry that seems out of place here, and it's the uh, the Bjorn or the Ursine folk, which are bear people. They don't have an example of a warrior, one that you'd come across to fight with hit points, armor class, etc. But it has a write-up of how to make one with a character class. I get that this write-up isn't as detailed as the Yetu because they're not really meant to be character classes necessarily. That's why they're in the monster chapter. But if you're going to just give me the character creation stats, they should be in the character creation chapter, not the monster chapter. It's a minor complaint. It doesn't detract from the other great monsters who, the ones who do get artwork have exceptional artwork, but not every monster has artwork. Lots of books do this. It's a gripe I have with several books, uh, Pugmire, things like that, where they give you these kind of vague descriptions of monsters but there's no picture associated with it. So you're kind of left guessing, which it's a role-playing book, it's fine. I, you have to describe the monsters to your players anyway, but it's just, a, it's just something I noticed. I know art's expensive, so that was probably part of that decision-making. Once again, more archaeological storytelling techniques used in the write-ups of these monsters, and it doesn't break the flow at all. It feels right, and it just pulls you in. Let's get to the important part. Should you buy this? It depends, obviously. There's a lot of this book I like. I could certainly see myself pulling parts of this book into my own games, or I could even see myself doing occasional one-off adventures in this world, but I would do a simplified write-up of the setting for my players, a one-page write-up, especially diving into the setting and the city life. So, my big, like I said, my biggest complaint of this book is going from granular to generic in the setting and city life, it feels like. It's going to make you read more of the book itself, which is fine, I suppose, that you bought it to read it, but it makes it harder to find stuff, I think because you typically associate general world information towards the beginning of the setting book and more granular information later on. There's some really cool ideas in here, and there are many that I wish that were fleshed out more and gave DMs more to play with rather than dedicating word count to some things like... Uh, what some of the coins are called, and other fluff pieces of lore, which are the pieces of lore that were clearly interesting to the authors, and things that they were very passionate about, but things that, from my experience DMing and talking to other DMs, are the first thing on the cutting room floor in regards to what is included when they run this setting. I'm gonna give this book a seven out of 10, I am very interested in the setting. I would love to visit other aspects of it if other books like this came out. I like many of the ideas presented in this book in general. I simply think the focus is a bit lacking, and there are a few organizational and user-friendly issues that detract from the book from being the best book it could be. So that's my takeaway from this book. And so I just want to thank everyone who stuck around and listened to the whole thing. And that is Snowhaven. 
Thank you all for listening.